relationship with us but it should never be seen as casual because he's a holy God and that holy God is perfect and totally distinct and yes he radically loves you and I and he accepts us as we are but he is still radically distinct from us and it's only by the sheer grace of God because of the finished work of Jesus that we can have an audience with him that's the Christian message The Christian message is that you get to have a relationship with God who created the world. He made every plant, animal, and person in it and developed a vast solar system that remains too large to fully comprehend. God is so unique. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. You can't be compared to Him. Pastor Daniel will remind you that despite this vast difference, God can be known all because of the cross of Christ. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Exodus chapter 34 as he begins his message, A Restored Covenant. Now, if you remember what's gone on in this final series, it's been all about this mobile worship tent, what we call the tabernacle. God desires worship in a very specific way. He cares about how we worship. I think that's one of the biggest issues that the modern American person, the modern person of the West struggles with about the Bible is that we're so used to saying, hey, whatever goes, goes. Whatever I want to do, it's fine. It's my life. Who are you to tell me? And we want to filter that into the way that we worship God as if God just accepts everything that we do by nature of us being fabulously human. But what we find in the Bible is that God is very specific about what he desires from us because he's God and God knows what's acceptable. So God doesn't just accept everything. He has certain parameters. So from chapters 25 to 31, God gave very specific painstaking details about all these different pieces of furniture, how he wants the tent to look, what he wants it to be made with, all these details, sizes, depths, all these things. And then you're like, okay, this is great. This is wonderful. God's saying how he wants to worship. And then we have this little interlude, chapters 32, 33, and 34. Remember in 32, the children of Israel didn't know what happened to Moses. Like, where, where is this guy? What happened to him? So like, we need some gods to worship. And so they went to Aaron and Aaron made a golden calf and they began to worship this, this idol that wasn't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God was very upset. You remember Moses came down with these two tablets of stone with the 10 commandments, the 10 words on it. And Moses breaks it when he gets down to the bottom of the hill. He's saying, look, you've broken the covenant. You have shattered this covenant. And everything that we've seen from the end of chapter 32, last week in chapter 33, and now in 34, it's about God restoring the covenant. And this teaches us an important principle about who God is. And this is the principle, is that God is faithful. He is faithful to the covenant. God, all through the scriptures, is shown as a husband 
whose spouse has strayed on their marriage, who says, look, I realize you have strayed. I acknowledge that you have strayed, but I want you back. That's the gospel message. And each and every one of us, no matter how famously or slightly we've strayed, we all should be abundantly grateful for the faithfulness of God. Because even though we all have the adulterer's heart, spiritually speaking, God still says, look, I've made a commitment that I intend to keep. And what we find is here in Exodus 34, God restores the covenant and ultimately God seals the covenant in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you and I, where God says, look, you have been infinitely unfaithful to me, but I am radically faithful by you. That's the gospel message. Now, because God is radically faithful does not mean we should be infinitely unfaithful perpetually because of God's faithfulness. Paul says it, should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No. So just because God is faithful does not mean we should be, well, if God's faithful, I don't have to be. We should respond to God's faithfulness by saying, Lord, I want to be faithful as you are. I want to be like you, Lord, not the way that comes naturally to me. I want to be faithful. The Bible says a faithful man who can find it. We should be faithful people, faithful to the Lord. Now, look at what happens in Exodus chapter 34, picking up in verse 1. It says this. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And now I'll write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which, which you broke. Verse 2. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain, and no man shall come up with you. And let no man be seen throughout all the mountain, let neither flocks nor herds feed before the mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth Generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. So notice this covenant that is being fully restored. God tells Moses, listen, I want you to cut two new tablets. The first tablet, the first two that had those Ten Commandments, Moses broke because of the unfaithfulness of the children of Israel, signifying, look, you shattered the covenant. God's like, I want you to make new ones. We're reinstituting the covenant. And it's beautiful because he says, I want you to cut the tablets. I'm going to write new ones on it. And in verse 2, he says, look, I want you to be ready in the morning. 
to come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Now, don't miss. They're in the middle of the desert. So if you want to get out there, you better get out there in the morning because it's going to get hot out. But there is a great principle here that I didn't want to miss. And that's the reality that Charles Spurgeon said it this way. We should look into the eyes of God before we look into the eyes of any other person. The idea of rising in the morning and getting our hearts before the Lord, placing your day in his hands before it begins. Now, I realize, listen, some of you are not morning people. I'm not necessarily a morning person. But you know what? God is still gracious in the morning. And there's something that happens when we get our hearts before the Lord in the morning, before we get into the workday, before we get into the calamity of family and child raising and all these things that go on. It calibrates and orients our life in a very special way. So I want to encourage you, make that time in the morning to get into the presence of God. Now, like all things in the morning, it's a discipline. It's a discipline, but it's a worthy discipline. God wanted to see Moses in the morning. He wanted to see Moses in the morning. And I like this. Now, to cycle back, I want you to know something in verse 1. He asked Moses to cut the stones, and he says, I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablet. Now, when you get to verses 27 and 28, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Notice God says, I'm going to write it, and then he tells Moses to write it. I wanted to bring that up because this is what biblical inspiration is. Biblical inspiration is God desiring to write something, but allowing a human author. And I think that's important because oftentimes people say, well, if God has inspired the scripture, why does Mark read differently than John? Why does Paul write differently than Peter? Because God has always inspired human authors to pen his, pen his word. The Bible didn't fall out of heaven. God inspired his prophets to pen these words. So you're going to have the voice of God filtered through a human author, not deformed by the human author. But if you read the epistles of John, John writes in very short, terse sentences. The apostle Paul is not like that. He writes differently. But biblical inspiration is that the holy God inspires an imperfect person to pen the words. And so it's interesting, in the same chapter, God's like, I'm going to write on it. And then he says, well, Moses, I want you to write on it. But God is still saying, I'm writing it. Because they're God's word filtered through a human author. So people always say, well, who wrote the Bible? I'm like, there's a human author, and then there's the divine author. The divine author inspires the human author, and the human author writes. And it's seen right here, very simply, in these verses. Now, in verse 3, because of God's holiness, he doesn't want, once again, when he's meeting with Moses on the mountain, he doesn't want any other people there. He doesn't want any animals there at all. It's just God and Moses. That's it. And because of the holiness of God, God is separate. He is distinct. This is a very important biblical concept that we see all through the Bible. And what it's teaching us is that God is not commonplace. 
But God is distinct. And in order to have a relationship with the holy God, we need to become as he is. We need to be cleansed so that we can have that relationship. And that's why I say, look, only Moses is coming up right now. No animals, nobody else on the mountain. And I believe that the holiness of God is something that we need to recover in our hearts. We need to recover the holy God, the God who is wholly distinct, the God who is not a man, the God who is not capricious and vindictive, but a God who exists outside of it all. One of the downsides of the way we think about God is it's become, God has become very casual. And don't get me wrong, God wants to have an intimate relationship with us, but it should never be seen as casual. Because he's a holy God. And that holy God is perfect and totally distinct. And yes, he radically loves you and I. And he accepts us as we are, but he is still radically distinct from us. And it's only by the sheer grace of God because of the finished work of Jesus that we can have an audience with him. That's the Christian message. That's the message, that the reason you and I can have a relationship with God is because God has taken care to make us acceptable in him. I was just talking to someone the other day, like, well, you know, I know you're a Christian pastor, so, but I, I just don't believe I need Jesus. I'm like, well, let me ask you a question. If you don't need Jesus, then how do you expect to be able to relate with God? I'm like, well, he created me. I'm like, well, that's true. I'm like, but don't you realize that you don't have because of your rebellion, you're an enemy of God by nature? Well, why would God make me an enemy? I'm like, well, God created you, but you lived your whole life running away from God, hiding from God, just like Adam and Eve when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm like, I did the same thing. And like, so you're telling me that if you believe in Jesus, you're no longer an enemy of God? I'm like, exactly. Like, well, how is that possible? I'm like, because Jesus is the only person who hasn't lived as an enemy of God. And if we believe in him and his death in our place, he gives us the right, the authority to be children of God because he hasn't lived in rebellion. And they're like, well, how do you know I've lived in rebellion against God? And then I know I got him. Because then you just, you just run the commandments with him. Like, okay, so, you know, and you guys have heard this before. It's almost so logical. It's too simple. It's like, well, so the Bible says don't steal. You ever steal? Nah, I never stole. Really? You never took a piece of bubble gum when you were a little kid from the You know, it's right there at grab level, you know? You never stole like a pen from work or a stamp? Never? Once? Oh, yeah, I did. Okay. I'm like, okay. We'll leave that alone. Like, you know, so the Bible says you shouldn't murder. You ever kill anybody? No. Oh, no. Come on. Daniel, you know me. Come on. You say, well, the Bible says if you ever, if you ever hated somebody, then you killed them in your heart. You ever say, I hate you? They kind of look and, you know, I'm like, I asked you two questions. You're a murdering thief. <laughs> no rebellion there, right? And then they're just like, oh. I'm like, listen, God's standard is different than ours. God values our lives enough to hold us accountable for our lives. And we need to recover the holiness of God, the distinctness of God. Now, notice in verse 4, Moses comes prepared. God says, I want you to bring me two tablets of stone. Moses shows up with two tablets of stone, just like the first one. And he carries them up the mountain to the Lord in Sinai. And notice the Lord descends in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So there's a visible representation of the presence of God, this cloud. 
Remember there, there was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? That was God's visible presence for them when they're in the wilderness. So the cloud comes down, and there the name of the Lord is proclaimed. Now, the, the concept of the name of the Lord literally means the nature of the Lord. That's a, it's a Hebraic way of saying the nature. I, I always use this same example. Like, so if you, when you think of somebody, if someone's like, oh, if you say, let's say, um, Pastor Bill Ritchie, right? Nobody says, oh, yeah, P-A-S-T-O-R-B-I-L-L-R-I-T-C-H-I-E, right? You, no, you, you think of Pastor Bill, the person. You think of him in his nice suit, the new slimmer version of Pastor Bill that, that we're proud of him with, you know? You think of the person. You think of him saying, like, good night, and all, all the opportunities, all the, the richieisms, as I like to call them, right? When you ever think of someone's name, you think of their entire nature, you don't think of the letters in their name. So by saying you proclaim the name of the Lord, it's saying, look, when, when the Lord descended in that cloud, he pro- this is my nature. This is who I am, my essence. And we have these beautiful, this beautiful description of the name of the Lord here, verses 6 and following. Now, I'll be honest with you. I really want to do a series on these names. Because each name deserves a full treatment. But because we're doing it through the Bible study, I'm going to fly over them. And I admit from the very beginning that I wish I didn't have to do it this way. We can do each name and plumb the depths of what these concepts mean. But notice what it says. It says beautifully, the Lord, the Lord God. Now, notice, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in most of your translations. That in the, is the way the English translates the personal name of God. Yahweh is most commonly known. Old school, we used to say Jehovah. It's four letters in the Hebrew. A yud, a he, a vav, and a he. Right? That's the person, that's how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. Scholars call it the tetragrammaton, which literally means four letters. They wouldn't just say four letters. That's not scholarly enough. So you say tetragrammaton. I was like, ooh, so smart. $60,000 education for a big word. You know, and I'm not knocking scholars. I, listen, I love reading. I love it. But sometimes you can say, look, it's just four letters. That's really what it is. A yodahe of a, and by saying the Lord, the Lord God. Repetition in Hebrew is meant for to accentuate it. It's like if someone said, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Two oh my goodnesses has more emphasis than one, right? So by saying the Lord, it's saying, I am the covenant making God. That's what it means. Yahweh is the God of the covenant. The God who chooses a people and says, you're going to be mine. And then it gets married to that word God, which is the Hebrew word Elohim. And and rabbis and scholars would tell you that the name Elohim speaks of God in his attribute of justice. The word Elohim is also used for human judges. So by putting the Lord, the Lord God, and saying the God of mercy and covenant and the God of justice. Now, why do I explain this? Because most people want to separate mercy and justice as two polar opposites. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So if you want to say, oh, the God of the Bible is so wrathful and the God of the New Testament is so loving, as if these things are polar opposites. But what's interesting is that the God of mercy and the God of justice is the same God. 
God equally gives to people what they deserve and doesn't. God, who is hates sin, is also the most radically loving God. Now, I realize, I realize that for some of you, like, well, you know, Pastor Neil, that sounds all fine and well, but how is that really possible? And if you were to read, even psychologists talk about the self-actualization pyramid. The self-actualized person actually, it's called the resolution of dichotomies, where two seemingly opposite things can be together as one. Like God, Jesus is fully God and fully man. How can it be both? Well, it can. They seem opposite, but they're not necessarily. And the God of justice and the God of mercy are one God. God gives everybody what they deserve. It's just a matter, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the judgment you deserve, God gave to Jesus in your place. If you don't want that, then God will give it to you. But the merciful God sent Jesus to the cross, that whoever would receive it. So I love this, the Lord, the Lord God. I mean, it's powerful. God's like, this is who I am. I am the covenant maker. I am the just God. And it's interesting that in Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim. And if you look at the rules of nature before the fall, it was totally just. I'll just leave that with you. You can go ponder that in your own time if you like those type of things. But notice, the Lord, the Lord God, and then merciful and gracious. Some of your translation says, full of compassion and gracious. So that word merciful means tenderly pitiful, and not pitiful in a negative way, but with compassion, with genuine care and concern. The Lord, the Lord God, is full of compassion. He looks at us in our state and says, if I'm them, I want to take care of them. And gracious, and you know that word gracious means unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. That's what it means. If you like those kind of acronyms, G-R-A-C-E for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That might be the best definition of grace that you'll find. Because it's one thing to say, listen, God is gracious. He gives unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. But the reason I like God's riches at Christ's expense is because that grace only comes through Jesus. God's unmerited favor only comes through the finished work of Jesus. And so he says, look, I'm the Lord, the Lord God. I'm full of compassion or merciful. I am the gracious God. He's like, I'm giving you what you don't deserve. You guys don't deserve I'm going to give it to you anyway. Then he says, long-suffering. That's a better word than patience, I believe, because that's what real patience is. Patience is suffering for a long time. And any of you who've had to be patient today, you know what that's like. And the reason most of us are impatient is because we don't like to suffer at all. Jesus is real. The names of God are as unique as He is. It's difficult to find only one term to describe Him. God's names represent all that He is and all that He does every characteristic that he's built inside his creation as well. Today, Pastor Daniel describes some of these attributes, touching on the important facts about your creator and why he deserves the praise he receives from you and all his children. Hey everybody, this is Pastor Daniel and I want to be honest with you for a moment. Life is messy 
And the hard reality is, if it isn't messy for you now, it will be, and it probably has been in the past. Did you know that you can still thrive in tough times? It's true, you can, but only through the power of Jesus. That's the purpose behind my book, Honestly. I want you to know how to keep living your best life in Jesus, no matter the circumstances of your life. You can find out more about it and get your own copy at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Next time on Jesus Is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will dive into the concept of forgiveness and what effect it has on you and on the person who has wronged you. Forgiveness isn't a natural response for a human. Pride and the desire for justice tends to get in the way. As a follower of Jesus, though, you're called to forgive others, just as your Heavenly Father has forgiven you all of your sins for all of time. You've been listening to Jesus Is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series called Tabernacle. Until then, may God bless.